Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds. May we pierce through the confusion that has uh, reigned throughout uh, history uh, over your character and see you as Jesus revealed you to be. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter, and the title is The Day of the Lord. Now, we're going to have some controversial things in today's lesson, but I want to kind of, before we get into the specifics, kind of lay a, a groundwork. When you hear the day of the Lord, what comes to mind? Second. Do you, th- okay, second coming, do you think celebration? Do you think, first thing is, this is going to be a celebration like the marriage feast of the Lamb. Is, when you're day of the Lord, is the first thing that comes to mind the marriage feast of the Lamb? Is that what comes to mind? Um, how about reunion, like the prodigal son and the reunion with his father, that we are the prodigals and we're going to have that reunion. Do you think of the joy of celebration? The day of the Lord is the day that we're going to be reunited. Is it, is it, or do you think like Romans chapter three, verse four, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. That's the Phillips translation. God, may you be proved right when you are judged. That's the, um, I think the new English Bible. Is that what you think of? This is the day God will be vindicated and we will be able to see him in his true light. Is this what you're thinking? Or do you think punishment, judgment, vengeance, wrath? And if so, what law lens are you looking through? Fire and destruction. Fire and destruction. There we go. The day of fire and destruction. Do you think of the day of the Lord as a day of rest and gladness. The day we can rest from our labors, our, our sojourn. This is the day we can be glad. Is there a parallel? When you think of day of the Lord, do you think of the Lord's day? The day of the Lord is the Lord's day, isn't it? Or am I just playing semantics at this point? Oh, you say I am. Okay. Is there a parallel between the weekly Sabbath and the day of the Lord? But this weekly Sabbath came at the end of uh, displays of great power and might and creation and making planet Earth and revealing truth about his methods and principles and the microcosm and the, we are theater respectful to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. And, and the, the, the Sabbath came. The day of the Lord comes at the end of God finishing his work of redemption, bringing healing and restoration and making a new heaven and a new earth is, is the process of the day of the Lord. The weekly Sabbath for those who reject the truth about God is the day of either the greatest violations, it's the greatest party day of the week, or for those who accept the Sabbath in its legal sense, in the false law construct, think about the Pharisees in Christ's day, it became the day of greatest burden, the day of greatest enslavement, the day with least freedom to do anything. Michael, um, our son, just came back from a week in Israel. And while he was there on Sabbath, it was the day that he observed there was the most restrictions. The, the Orthodox Jews, they, they were in the hotel and they got on the elevator. And on Sabbath, all the elevators are programmed to stop at every floor. <laughs> programmed to stop at every floor because an Orthodox Jew cannot spark a fire so they can't push the button to get off the floor. So they, they have to go on every... Now they have actually some elevators for Gentiles which are work... Traditionally, you get on, push the button you want. But they have the Orthodox Jew elevator where you get on there. It stops at every floor so you can get off without having to start a fire by sparking a button, by pushing the button. They can only walk so many feet. They can't drive their cars. 
they can't carry a handkerchief, so they pin it to their, with a pin before Sabbath onto their clothing so they have their handkerchief, but they can't carry it. They have freedom. They have enslavement. So, what will it be like on the day of the Lord for those who see God in his true light as Jesus revealed him to be? This will be a day of celebration. This will be a day of reunion. But for those who've rejected God and see him in the false light, what will it be like for them? Will it be a day of joy or a day of destruction? A day of misery, a day of pain and suffering because God is doing something different? Or just like the Sabbath, for those who see God in his true light, it's a day of liberty, a day of freedom, a day of rest. But those who don't, it's a day of enslavement. Friday's lesson, I want you to turn to Friday's lesson. There's a book, there's a quote from the book called The Desire of Ages. And in this quote, it says the following. The expectations of Christ's coming to make men... The expectations of Christ's coming is to make men fear the Lord, to fear his judgment upon transgression. It is to awaken them to the great sin of rejecting his offerings of mercy. Those who are watching for the Lord are purifying their souls by obedience to the truth. Is that right? What do you understand that to mean? What lens are you hearing these words through? Do you like the sound of it? Does it warm your heart? Does it make you feel like this is celebration time? Or does it make this feel like this is something we should be afraid of? It's a terrible time. Do you see these words judgment upon transgression as a heavenly physician diagnosing and making judgment upon disease? Or do you see it as a judicial magistrate making judgment of wrong, against wrong deeds and, and seeking to punish those wrong deeds? The problem is not in the quote. The problem is in how we automatically tend to read things through the lens of how human magistrates work. It's how we automatically do. Before I give you some, another quote from the same author that kind of clarifies the language used there, I thought I'd read some Bible texts about the day of the Lord. So let's look at some Bible texts about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, 6 and 9 through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make, land, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make... Man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Joel 1.15 Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Amos 5.18-24 Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear, as though he entered a house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. It will not... Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch darkness without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Obadiah verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. You have, 
as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-9 through 9. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that the day should surprise you as a thief. Wait a minute, I thought this was going to be a day of darkness, but wait a second, we're not in the darkness, we're, we're in the light. You are the sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Two more. This is uh, actually, yeah, Joel um, 2, 31 and 32. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wait, is that a different message than you heard in all those others? Same day? But now suddenly all those who call it will be saved. Interesting. It's a day of salvation. And this is Joel 3, 14 through 16. Now notice this, day of the Lord. Multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Now, does that make it clear what the day of the Lord is? What's going on here? Is God going to, do you hear this? Is God is going to use his power to inflict pain, suffering, torment, misery, punishment upon people? Is that what you're hearing? Sounds almost that way in certain places, doesn't it? Why, do they, why does it sound this way? Because people read these verses through the human law lens and the way human governments work not through what God has revealed about himself through Jesus Christ and the rest of Scripture. Under design laws, judgment is diagnosis. And sometimes judgment means therapeutic interventions. In my judgment, this is what's best for you. And the judgment's always harmonized with his character and the way he runs things, his, his law of love and law of liberty. So with that in mind, We had words like anger. We had words like wrath. We had these very strong words in these Old Testament passages. Now let's look at some other places and see if the Bible enlightens to what's actually happening. You see, when you read Scripture, I want to give you this idea. There are declarative statements. Here's a declarative statement. God is love. That's a declaration. Now, isolated by itself, taking it away from the rest of Scripture without including the history of what we see in the life of Jesus, that word is act, that, that declaration has very little meaning. That's just a declaration. But it has real meaning when we attach God as love to what we see in the life of Jesus. God so loved the world, he gave. His, for for a greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. We see the self-sacrificial nature of how it functions. Jesus' acts of what he did in his life 
all the way through the cross, these are not declarations, these are achievements. And so when you read scripture, you can read many passages of scripture that are descriptive or declarative statements. But to enlighten yourself to what those declaratives mean, you have to look at the action statements. What does God actually do? Where do you see him acting? Where do you see him doing stuff? And then you can actually then enlighten yourself to what the declarations mean. So we're going to look at that. Romans chapter 1, 18, and you can look this up all the way through verse 34. And Paul, verse 18, says the wrath of God is, notice, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to tell you in the next several verses, you'll find it if you look for it, five times he tells you why God's wrath comes. And this is why. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred the images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He says this over and over again. Because they didn't retain the truth about God, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then verse 24, 26, and 28, God takes action. Paul says it three times to emphasize it. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. And all these terrible, destructive things happen. Not as an infliction from God, but as a consequence, if you insist on deviating from God's laws upon which life are built, pain, suffering, and destruction come upon you. It's the inevitable consequence. Love doesn't want that to happen. So if you see your child going down a road of injury and self-destruction, breaking the laws of health or whatever, you intervene in all types of ways to try to turn them back, turn them back. But if they insist over and over again at some point, you have to let them go. You can't chain them to a wall and lock them in a closet and make them right and healthy and loyal and faithful and loving and kind by, by doing that. You cannot get that transformation by exercise of might and power. So God's wrath surrenders them because this is how love works. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Now, Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're going to read verses 22 and 23 and verses 29 and 30, same chapter. Now listen to this. For the for a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. I will devour the earth and its harvest and set fire to the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. Now listen, same chapter. But God says to the, the wise will understand what his wrath really is. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be, how could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? What is God's wrath? Same thing Paul describes. When they insist on rebellion over and over again, God finally surrenders them to reap what they freely choose. This is the only way. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 17. When this happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. This is the wrath of God. This is the anger of God. This is design law. This is like saying to your child who's got an addiction and you're doing everything. You've put them in rehab 17 times. You've done everything you can for them, but they insist on going back to use drugs over and over again. At some point, what do you do? You let them go. And what happens if they go back into that behavior again? They destroy themselves. Yeah. So, 
What are the judgments of God? Now, with this in mind, I showed you all this from Scripture. That quote from the Desire of Ages that sounded so, the judgments of God against transgression, the same author writes this in another place. This is a place she wrote this. was a manuscript release, volume 14, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest both by sea and land will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath, as it says in the New Testament. He's a roaring lion seeking who may devour. He is at work, he knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we've ever dreamed of. Are these judgments that, that is written about here the same as you read in Desire of Ages? And did you immediately think that when we read those other passages? The judgments of God are what? I judge, and there's, there's other places, like in Hosea. Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. That's in Hosea. Is that a judgment? Same thing, God's wrath. I can't break him free. His heart is is, is tied to these false gods. He, he won't listen to any truth. No love has any impact upon him anymore. What am I to do? Let him go. A couple of pages beyond in that Desire of Ages quote that you started out with, it, it says, rapidly are men, people, ranging themselves under the banner that they have chosen. So, yeah, same, same principle. So there's a little bit of a light there if you read further. Mm-hmm. So what is to be feared as we approach the judgment, the day of the Lord? Are we to fear God who's doing everything in his power with all his divine agencies, through Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and all his angelic hosts, he's doing everything in his power to heal and save, should we fear him, or should we fear unremedied sin in our lives? Do you know most Christians are more afraid of God who's trying to save them than unremedied sin in their lives, which is destroying them. It's the truth. Yes. Anything about, you know, the unremedied sin, there's a remedy. So we don't have to be fearful of that. We just got to turn it over to our doctor. You know? But we do have to fear it if we don't go to the heavenly physician. Right. So yeah. If we try to heal ourselves without him, we're going we're to die. So the source of pain, suffering, is it coming from God? Is God? Do you have a God who is the source of pain, suffering, and death? Or do you have a God who's the source of righteousness, life, love, goodness, and pain, suffering, and death come from sin, which is taking us away from the God who is the source of life and goodness? Yes? It's just hard to tell people that because the Bible uses terms, you know, like the wrath of God and like words like, if you do this, if you keep... All my decrees, if you pay attention to my commandments, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases which I brought upon the Egyptians. I mean, it uses terms as though God was bringing the evil. So this is a brilliant comment. And and my next question in the notes are, why then do Bible writers use such language, just like you're describing? Why do the Bible writers write this way if, in fact, as I showed you from Scripture, there is insight to show it means this other thing? Why are they writing this way then? 
Well, first off, what level of development were the primary audience that the Bible writers, those Old Testament prophets, were writing to? What was the mindset of most of Israel when those Old Testament prophets were writing? Who was their primary God that they were worshiping at that time? Was it Yahweh? Baal. Baal. Ashtoreth. Um, Beelzebub, God of the flies. I mean, they were worshiping these very primitive things, and so God is talking to them on a very primitive, childish level. Number one. And what was the belief system of the, basically the entire world in Old Testament times when it comes to God and, or should I say, gods? Did most of the world believe in there is one God? Or did most of the world believe in polytheism, many gods? And so in Old Testament times, you don't see a lot about Satan being talked about. There's a little bit in the book of Job. You get a little bit here. Represented in the the, uh, snake in in the... in the garden, but he's not talked about a lot. In fact, you will find scriptures where God is taking responsibility for things that he did not do. How was it that King Saul died? Fell on his sword. Anybody know? Fell on his sword. He committed suicide. And the Bible describes in one place that Saul asked his armor bearer to run him through, but he wouldn't do it, so Saul falls on his own sword and commits suicide. But in another place, the Bible describes Saul's death in what language? God put him to death for his disobedience when visiting the witch of Endor. Wait a second. God, so there was angels standing invisibly against Saul, forcing him down on this. He's going, no, no, I'm trying to resist. And God is forcing him on. Is that what happened? No, God didn't do this. But yet God is being described as doing it because what he didn't do is he didn't stop it. Interesting. You will find Pharaoh's heart is described. Three different ways in Scripture. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart is in Scripture multiple times. And then one time it just simply says neutrally, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It says it all three ways. What does it mean? How is it that God hardened his heart? How, so you have to understand how design law works, how reality actually works. How is it that a heart gets hardened? What's the method or process that happens? So God is the source of love and truth. And it says in the scripture that he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone opens the door, he will come in and sup with him. And he what door is that referring to? The door to your heart. Now, what does the Holy Spirit and God use to knock upon the door of your heart? Does he use a battering ram? Is it force? Is it coercion? Is it threat? Holy Spirit? Sometimes. Truth and love. Truth and love. I would say the threats are only for those who misunderstand what's actually happening. Okay, so we're gonna we're coming to Pharaoh, and I'm gonna bring up what your point is. You're probably following Paul Saul on Damascus Road. Again, it wasn't a threat. It was an attention getter. Okay. So truth and love. So here, when the Holy Spirit presents truth to any individual mind, then that mind is left free to determine I accept and open and embrace the truth, or I reject the truth. Whatever the truth is you're left free to accept or reject. What happens to a heart that is understanding of a piece of truth, whatever that truth is, but they choose against the truth? What happens to their heart? So it hardens. It hardens. So now you look at what happened with Pharaoh. Moses comes, and there are ten plagues. Well, those ten plagues, what was the primary purpose of the plagues? 
This was a polytheistic society. And notice, every plague was specifically against one of the gods of Egypt to show that their gods had no power. They're powerless. And so Pharaoh, who's worshiping all these gods, now has to decide, wait a second, who's the real god? This, this Nile? This frog? These flies? Who's the real god? These things? Or is, is Moses' god the real god? And if you read the scripture... When the plague is on, he is convicted that his God has no power. Moses' God is, is the real God. After the plague is removed, though, he rejects it. And he accepts a lie. Well, that was a mudslide up the, up the Nile that, that turned it to made it look like blood. And then after the, the Nile turns all muddy, that, that killed a bunch of frogs who hopped out on and died on the land. And then the flies came to eat the frogs. I mean, there was no God in any of this. This was all just natural consequence. This is, this is just nature taking its course. And he hardens his heart and makes lies to believe. And so God had a role in bringing truth to Pharaoh and bringing Pharaoh to conviction of that truth. But Pharaoh had the role to decide, accept or reject. Thus, God hardened his heart by bringing the truth. If he never had the truth, he wouldn't have to decide. And his heart would not have gotten as hard as it did. So we find, why is it written this way? One, polytheism. God wants them to come back and see a one, there is one God. Just one. So he takes responsibility so they won't put Satan up as, a, as some type of a supernatural being that they begin to worship because in the polytheistic societies they have their good gods who brought the harvest, who brought children, who brought health, who brought wealth, and they offer sacrifices to the good gods for all the blessings, but they had the mean and destructive gods that they would pray to and offer sacrifices to to destroy and attack their enemies. They had different gods. And God didn't want them to think Satan was a god worthy of worship as the one who brings all the evil. So he took responsibility for both. There's only one God. It was not this way in the immediate aftermath of the fall. When Eden was there and the angels were blocking the way to the uh, tree of life, as it describes in Genesis, and prior to the flood, they did not have this concern. It was only after the polytheism came that God was taking responsibility. They understood there was an evil agency prior to the flood. Yes? Just wanted to clarify my comment about Saul and Paul, whatever. Um, God gave him blindness. He gave him time to think about the evidence. You know, yes, he did an attention-getting device. People look at that as force, but he did not force him at all. He caused him to stop. And think. And think. Yeah. Gave him evidence for him to contemplate. Now, let's look at Sabbath's lesson, the first two paragraphs. And I want you to put your thinking caps on and think about what's being said here. In ages past, people who didn't believe in God were seen as untrustworthy, even potentially dangerous. Why? The idea was simple. If they didn't believe in God, then they didn't believe in any future judgment in which they would have to answer before him for their deeds. Without this incentive, people would have greater tendency to do wrong. Though such thinking is rather antiquated and politically incorrect today, one cannot deny the logic and reason behind it. Of course, many people don't need the fear of future judgment in order to do what is right. But at the same time, the prospect of answering to God could certainly help motivate correct behavior. Were you sickened when you read this? Yes. I immediately thought of a quote from Christ Object Lessons. Which is? The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God for the sense of obligation merely, because he's required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are counted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. 
True obedience is the outworking of a principle within that springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Okay. It's, it's not guilt. It's it never drive us to right behavior. This wasn't guilt. This wasn't talking about guilt. This is talking about fear of punishment. This is talking about he's powerful, and if you do wrong, he's keeping track of your deeds, and he will punish you. And because you know you're going to get punished, that fear of punishment will keep you on the straight and narrow. Well, I want to talk about this. I was grieved as I saw this for, because this is actually the infection. This is the lie. And I'm going to expose it to you. I'm going to show it to you. First off, what moral developmental level is this? This is the most primitive level. This is level one, reward and punishment. If something is right if you get a reward for it, it's wrong if you get punished for it. And so we, we are going to you know, be safe citizens and trustworthy. The idea here is we can trust people who believe in God who is a judge and who will ultimately you will have to face all your sins for. And if you don't have them properly, kind of, he will punish you for them. If you believe that, then you become a trustworthy person we can trust in society. That's what this is saying. I'm going to point that out to be completely false. For instance, let's look at history. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, did they believe in God? They believe in a judgment? And what happened to them? What about King Saul we just talked about? Did he believe in God? Did he believe in a judgment? What about Balaam? Did Balaam believe in God and believe in a judgment? What about Ananias, excuse me, Annas and Caiaphas? Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests that coordinated the, the crucifixion of Christ, did they believe in God and a judgment? Okay, what about popes and prelates through the Dark Ages? Did they preach and teach about God and a future judgment and punishment? What about Puritans that burned so-called witches at the stake? Did they believe in God and they believe in a judgment and a punishment? What about the KKK and other groups who burn crosses, notice, crosses on the yards of, in the yards of black people and white supremacists who participate in lynching? Do they believe in God and a judgment? What about mafia bosses who orchestrate all types of criminal syndicate organizations but go to confession and confess in the confessional all their sins so they're taken care of in some legal mechanistic way so they won't be punished in the future? Why are they going? Because they believe in God and a judgment and punishment for sin. But yet, are they trustworthy people? What about Islamic terrorists? Do they believe in God and a future judgment? I mean, this is the, it is so offensive to me because it misrepresents everything we're trying to teach about God and it is part of the infection that actually prevents the Christian world from fulfilling God's commission to take the gospel to the world. This keeps people in a false construct of God, in fear of him, and then we create theologies designed to hide us from God rather than praying like David in the Old Testament. Search me and see What's wrong? Search me and see the wicked way. The wicked way. Search me and find it, Lord. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. See, when you're under design law and you know something's wrong, you're sick, you're feverish, you're nauseated, you go to the doctor and you say, search the deep recesses. Do the ultrasounds. Do the MRIs. Find what's wrong with me, doc, and fix it. That's what we should be praying. But we don't pray that when we have the judicial magistrate. Instead, we have the judicial magistrate. We believe that if he finds anything we've done wrong, he's got to punish. So we hire advocates. We hire lawyers. We hire people to obfuscate the truth, to cover it over, to prevent the judge from ever having to make an action. Let's exclude that. Uh, The rules of law prevent that from coming in. Someone else has already paid the penalty. Let's just get a pardon for it. This is what we're doing. Yes. You know, as we have heard before, as you study, you know, God's on judgment and... When we realize that we judge him, almost like we judge 
the consultant that maybe the surgeon is going to do a, a life-saving procedure on us, we're going to die. We judge him to find, I trust this guy. The malpractice cases brought up against him are all false, whatever it may be. And we say, please take me to surgery. I trust you because... And that is the key. You, please judge me now. I trust you, so let's... let's and let's, thus, if there is one surgeon who has 100% success and everybody survives, but there's somebody who doesn't want anybody to go to him because he hates people, wants people to die, then he's going to make all types of false allegations and false lawsuits and false things against the doctor to make it appear that he's a horrible doctor that no one can trust. And that's exactly what's happened in the Great Controversy. Satan is misrepresenting God constantly, so people won't trust him. So I'm going to suggest to you, millions and millions of people through history believe in a judgmental God and a future judgment, yet carry out the most horrendous acts of evil. So this idea, do you believe this idea of, if you believe in God and believe in a future judgment, that prevents you from doing evil? Do you believe that's true? Or, in fact, could it be just the opposite, that when you believe that, it actually increases the likelihood you're going to do evil? So, there's a study, there's a study that came out recently. Which do you think is more altruistic? Altruistic, caring for others, volunteering, more likely to be kind, compassionate. Those who believe in God in our society today, or those who are agnostic and don't believe in God? Well, an interesting study of 1,170 children from six countries, United States, Canada, China, Jordan, South Africa, and Turkey, found that the children raised in religious homes were not as good at sharing and more likely to be punitive when compared to children raised in secular homes. The authors of the study said in an interview, in our study, kids from atheist and non-religious homes were, in fact, more generous. Together, these results reveal the similarity across countries in how religion negatively influences children's altruism. They challenge the view that religious religiosity facilitates pro-social behavior and call into question whether religion is vital for moral development, suggesting the secularization of moral discourse does not reduce human kindness. In fact, it does just the opposite. It's actually, when you understand design law, one of the laws are the law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. We neurobiologically, in my book, The God-Shaped Brain, I show the neuroscience behind it. When you admire and worship a punitive, punishing, judgmental God, you become like that punitive, punishing, judgmental God, and you use those methods in how you treat people. So you become less tolerant, more intolerant, more punishing, more judgmental, more critical, less compassionate, because that's the God you worship. Only worshiping a God of love that Jesus revealed does it transformationally become more compassionate. So, the healthiest philosophical worldview to have that will develop people in the most mature, gracious, kind, loving view is to believe in a God who is like Jesus in character. If you believe in God and you have that kind of character that you're admiring and worshiping, that's the healthiest worldview. But it is actually healthier and you become a more Christ-like person if you don't believe in any God at all, then to believe in a God who is arbitrary, severe, judgmental, punitive, unforgiving, requires payments or appeasements to be made to them or else they'll kill you if they don't. If you believe in that God, you become less like Christ than the people who believe in no God at all. That's design law. So it is not surprising to me that this study, in fact, it's very predictable. Remember, when you understand God's laws, you can predict things. How many can predict what will happen when I let go of this? You all can predict it. and You don't have the gift of prophecy. It's a future event. How can you do it? Because you understand the law of gravity. Things become, when you understand the law of worship, it becomes predictable what people become like when they worship these 
punishing God constructs. That's why the Bible says, here's the Bible, not to give you the science on law of worship. Here's what the Bible says, Jeremiah 2.5. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Or Romans 1.28. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge of God, he has given them over to corrupt minds. What happens to the mind when you don't have the true knowledge of God? The mind becomes corrupted with the false God constructs. This is modeling. This is, uh, in psychiatry and psychology, it's called modeling, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. So the sad truth is this. These ideas put in our quarterly are obstructing the final mission of God's church on earth, obstructing the final message of mercy that is to lighten the world and prepare the world for Christ's return. And so this is out of the book you quoted, Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Here's what, what this author suggests is supposed to be the message that we take to the world at this time in human history. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Sunday's lesson First paragraph says, Peter warned his readers about the kind of dangers, dangerous teachings that the church would face. He cautioned against those who, while promising liberty, would lead people back into the bondage of sin. Anybody remember last week's lesson? We gave examples about the theology that promises freedom, but if you believe that theology, that religion, within Christianity, it actually enslaves you and, and makes you more slave instead of more freedom? Anybody remember last week? Can anybody... In two or three sentences, sum that up? How it happens? What is sin in your mind? Is it bad deeds, bad behaviors? Or is it a condition of heart and mind that is out of harmony with God's? Instead of a condition of of love and honesty and integrity, it's a condition of selfishness and fear. What is the real problem? Is it the deeds or is it the heart condition? So could one be a slave to sin because they are in a religion that teaches sin is a legal problem of bad deeds that must be accounted for so they confess the bad deeds seeking legal pardon and payment and erasure from records but never actually experience a change of heart. Like the mafioso boss that we talked about. In this situation, they live in fear. They stay in fear and stay in guilt and stay in shame. Fear of judgment, fear of unconfessed sin, fear of people finding out what they've done. And they create the theologies. Like the guy who came and saw me at that GC event two years ago, who was telling people that I teach heresy. Why was his big concern? His one question, do you believe that we confess our sins, that they're erased from the record books in heaven? That's what he asked me. And I said to him, I believe that God wants to erase sin from the hearts, minds, and characters of his people and write his law on their hearts and minds, as it says in Hebrews in the New Covenant, such that they become new creations, and it's no longer the sinful self that lives, but Christ lives in them. Thus, he's erasing sinfulness out of the people, but he's not erasing history. Historical facts remain. And he goes, see, I know you didn't believe the Bible. (laughs) Uh, See, I knew you didn't believe the Bible. For him, he said, and he said these words, there are some sins that I've committed that I've confessed that God has raced out of his record book and when we get to heaven, no one will ever know what I've done. 
See, what, is it, what does that tell you? He lives in fear. He's afraid. He's afraid if people know what he's done, that he'll be rejected, he'll be criticized, he'll be, re- he'll be kicked out, he won't be liked, he won't be loved. This is this religion that does not set free. They're slaves still. It's very sad. Let's come back to the truth about God that says this. Now, the bottom section, in the pink section, it says, why must the word of God and not culture or our own judgment or reason be the ultimate authority in our lives? After all, why else would we keep the seventh-day Sabbath other than because of the word of God? Do any questions come to mind as you hear that? For instance, how many Christian groups are there today that quote the Bible as their source of authority, yet argue amongst themselves over what it actually means? If you don't know, there's 34,000. According to the Christian Encyclopedia, there's 34,000 different Christian groups. How can we understand the Bible? How can you understand the Bible if you don't reason and think? Why did God give you reasoning powers if he doesn't want you to use them? Why does God say in Isaiah, come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, if we're not supposed to reason with him? Can love and trust... Oh, what does God want from us? Blind, unthinking obedience or our love and trust? Can you love and trust someone that you'd never think about? You've never evaluated their trustworthiness. Can love and trust be obtained without a person being fully persuaded in their own mind of the trustworthiness of the other? Don't you have to be persuaded that that person is trustworthy? Well, I'm telling you, you can trust them. You can trust them. Somebody comes up to you in the mall and says, Hey, um, can I have the keys to your car? You can trust me. <laughs> hey, they, they said they were trustworthy. What was, was Should I question? Do those, did those who put Christ on the cross claim to believe the scriptures and also keep the Sabbath? Did that protect them from being God's enemies? Hey, they, they're going by the scripture and they keep the Sabbath. They, they must be safe. What do you think, or what do you understand the purpose of the Sabbath is? is, The only reason to keep it is because the Bible says it. Well, Jesus' words, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let me give you a thought to think about. McKee Baking Company has built a fitness center for their employees. The employees were not built for the fitness center. Think that through. The fitness center was built for the employees. The employees were not built for the fitness center. I'll just let you contemplate the implications of that. The Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for it. Made for you for what reason? Ah, so you got to contemplate that, don't you? What is the fitness center built for? What do you think the Sabbath was made for? In some way, if you don't understand it, just like the fitness center, it is there as a resource for you to use or not. And if the people at McKee's don't use the resource in the physical center, do they get punished by the organization for not going and using it? Do they keep track of who uses and doesn't and then dock their pay if they don't go? No, it's simply a resource, a free gift for them to go use. Just like the Sabbath, a free gift for you to use or not. You don't have to. Does God keep track and say, oh no, but if you don't use the fitness center, or if you do use it, do you get certain blessings and advantages from those who don't? Is this a, 
Well, God said if you use the, the, he said if you use the fitness center, they will give you blessings. Well, they actually said in their manual, those who use it, the evidence shows will actually get blessings. They'll be healthier. They'll have less, their cholesterol will come down. Their heart rate will come down. They'll have lower blood pressure, lower risk of heart attacks. And so McKee will bless them with the power of McKee to live longer and healthier lives if they use the fitness center. Is that what's happening? This is how many people view the Sabbath. If you, if you use the Sabbath, it's a gift for you. And if you use it and you get blessings, it's God using his divine power. He said, if you do this, I'll give you these blessings. Think about it. I'm going to leave, that's enough on that one. Monday's lesson. <laughs> Monday's lesson is called scoffers. Those who ridicule the idea of God in the second coming. How do you deal with such people? Why do you think, in your mind, why do you think Christ has not returned? Ooh, okay, I like where you're going with that. See, there's, this one, there's a certain idea that God's sovereign. And God foreknows, and because he foreknows, he's foreset, and he set the time, and, and the clock, and the cosmic eternal clock has not run out yet. But when the clock runs out, all the alien free, here I come, ready or not. We just haven't run to his clock that he's preset. That's, that's how some people think. God's sovereign, he knows, he's set the time. Others, though, are going along where you're going. That the time of the second coming, God knows, but God hasn't set. He just knows when it's coming. And it's coming based on events on planet Earth. And events on planet Earth have to, certain events have to occur necessary for God to be able to fill his purposes in his coming. And therefore, the choices of human beings are playing a role in setting the time. And I was going to ask if you think there's something happening that people are doing on Earth that's actually slowing or delaying or, or preventing the coming. Jesus said, when the gospel of the kingdom... We preach to the whole world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. Jesus' words, not mine. Notice his words, the gospel of the kingdom. Question, what kingdom? The kingdom of heaven. Is there another way to describe the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God's government, okay. And God's government is built upon what law? Design law, which is the law of love. So can we say the kingdom of love? When the kingdom of love is gone to love. Now, which kingdom, if you look at Christianity throughout the history of Christianity, which kingdom, gospel of which kingdom has gone to the world? Has it been the gospel of the kingdom of love that has gone to the world? Or has it been the gospel of the kingdom of imperial law? A God who has given law and judgment and, 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 and justice requires that God keep track of every bad deed that you've done. And, and God, God must punish breaking his law. And justice requires that he inflict punishment. But he loved us too much, so he sent his son and punished his son. And if you don't get accounting for all your bad deeds, then God will punish you in a place called hell. Which gospel has gone to the world? Pardon? I don't think both have gone to the world at all. Well, the reason I say that is the, you know, we have a Christian nation out there that not only thinks of a God that loves them and came to them and died in the world, but on top of that, they, they also are confused about the type of God that was in the Old Testament. So that, that confuses them, and they're thinking they're serving a God of love, but yet in turn, they are fearful. So... When, you, when I say a God of love, I'm talking functional, understanding the methodologies of the God of love, not the declaration of love. If you go to any Christian church and say, how many believe God is love? Essentially, all the hands go up in any Christian church in the world because there's a declaration, God is love. But then when you say to them, well, what is God's justice? Well, that is God going through the record books and punishing sin. 
and God must use his power. So where, why, why did the wicked die in the end? Because God must kill them or torture them in hell forever. Okay, so God then is, is, is love, but love is the source of inflicted pain and suffering and kills. This is not love anymore. This has got the four-letter word love attached to it, but it's not love at all. And so they're not believing in a God of love. They're believing in a God who has the manifestations and characteristics of the enemy. Now, in Old Testament times, this was called Baal worship. Remember who Baal was? Baal was the son of El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai, the son of El. Baal was the god of creation who creates the weather, the god of thunder and lightning, who brings the harvest. Baal, in the, in the Old Testament, God fought against um, the Leviathan, the great serpent, on behalf of the people. And he also fought the god of death, known as Moat. And in his battle with de- uh, the god of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. This was Baal. Old Testament Israel had a Hebrew word called Baal, B-A-A-L, uh, that meant husband and protector. And they named some of their cities, referring to Yahweh as the husband and protector of Israel, B-A-A-L, like Baal Peor and so forth. So what was wrong in Elijah's day of worshiping the God who is the son of the father God, who is the creator, who fights the serpent, who fights death, who dies for us and rises again? What's wrong with worshiping this God? That Baal required appeasement. Baal was also a punishing God. And if you didn't bring offerings to him, he would punish you. He only did good based on offerings. He required sacrifice and appeasement. Now, Baal became the God of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Zeus to the Greeks, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to Christians who worship a punishing God who must be appeased. That's why Malachi prophesied at the end of time that the prophet Elijah must come again. At the end of time, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons and sons back to the fathers. What's that talking? A gospel of love and reconciliation must come again. This is what he's telling us. Okay, yes, George. That's your earlier question. You know, it sounds like the apostles had it down pretty good for the first two, three hundred years. But did it go to the world? Did the American Indians, did the Inuit people, did the Chinese people, did they hear the gospel? The pro- process started, did it end? You know, right. Able to stop it. So it didn't go to the entire world. It started. And if we'll just learn what they had initially, and give the real Jesus, not the false Jesus. Right. And so Paul says in, in Thessalonians that the man of sin is going to arise, that man of perdition, who sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is, this is the end will not come until the man of sin is revealed. And this man of sin is going to come and he's going to set himself up in God's temple. Now what temple is this man of sin setting himself up in? The one in Jerusalem? No, that got tore down in AD 70. No, that's not the one. Did, did he go up into heaven, into the heavenly sanctuary, and knock Jesus off his throne and set himself up there? Nope. No. Know you not that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and God's Spirit dwells in you? He set himself up in the Spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God. How? By the imperial law construct and getting Christians to believe that God functions no different than a Roman Caesar. And we worship this God, and this is why the message of Daniel, 2300 years in the sanctuary be cleansed. The cleansing of the sanctuary is cleansing the hearts and minds of people from this distorted God concept and bringing us back to the true knowledge of God. Yes? Watch a brief follow-up. A while back I was talking to someone who very much had an understanding of the American Indians. When our missionaries first came here, they came with pretty much a know-it-all attitude. You are savages, we know it all. And it turns out they both were confused. If they both talked and dialogued and both swallowed their pride, I think we could have found the real gospel again. Because they helped the Indians. Most of them didn't accept the gospel. We haven't had a very good insight to this day with Indians. That's because we didn't present the gospel. They presented the false view, an imperial dictator, a god who would, who would give smallpox blankets to, to, to kids and children to kill them. Why should they accept a god like that? Come on. So they were wise to reject that god. Yeah, of course they were. 
So on Tuesday's lesson, a day, uh, a thousand years as a day. What do you think of the title? I know many people who struggle with concepts of time and how time works. The lesson states in the third paragraph, in other words, our conception of time is not like God's. So we need to be careful in judgments we make about time. First off, do you believe that God made time? Yeah. If God made time, is God subject to time or is time subject to God? Time is subject, subject to God. Could this be one, of, one additional aspect when Jesus said he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he's saying he's the Lord of time? He's the time Lord. Yes, I think he is. He's the Lord of time and space and creation and all things in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, were created by him. That's what the scriptures teach. Is God constrained to a linear existence? Linear, meaning one moment happens after another moment, happens after another moment. This is how we live. Is he constrained to a linear existence? Or does God live outside time and all points in time are equally accessible to him simultaneously? One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote in a book um, that I may know him, page 12, the following. I am, when, Jesus, when God said, I am that I am. I am means an eternal presence. The past, present, and future are alike with God. And it goes on to describe more of that. Do you believe that to be true, though? That God is outside time. He's above time. He transcends time. Yes. No. You don't? Why? Why does it say, when the time was right, Jesus came? So, so why does it say why the time was right? Because the time in human history. We don't live outside time. We have time, and God is speaking to a language we can understand. So when the time in human history was right, Jesus came. God may, may be above time by itself, but he always works in time oh, with us. I like where you're going with that. So, the, so now you've brought another element. Does God work in time with us? Yes. This is God, it says God lives in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 6.16. I ask unapproachable by whom? By all created beings, because I believe this is not just physical light it's talking about. This is the light of truth, the light of knowledge. God is infinite. He has infinite knowledge, and a finite being cannot enter infinity. It's beyond us. And so God, who is love and wants a close intimacy with his creation, a member of the Godhead must leave infinity in order to interact on a close basis with his creation, enter time. And that member of the Godhead is Christ. He's the member of the Godhead who leaves infinity and steps into linear existence and interacts in time with creation. But God still is above it. Yes? Just paralleling what this gentleman said, uh, what would be the utility of having, uh, you know, being able to be present in all time uh, as far as when it comes to like the investigative judgment, uh, the pretty much uh, uh, he that is clean, let him be clean still. He is this dirty, let him be dirty still. Uh, it's just when you think about God being able to access all time, it's almost like this parallel universe concept where someone who was lost, if something changed, so if they... I understand your concept. And now they've made a decision for God. In our timeline, they were lost. But in a different timeline, something could have gone different and they chose God. Like, what, what would be the utility of God being able to go back and forth in time and not live on a... So once you bring in the element of different timelines, that's a different question than being outside of time in a singular timeline. So I'm going to stick with a singular timeline rather than talking parallel universes at this point in time. 
Okay, because I'm not really a believer in the parallel universe concept. I think we have decisions in a, in a linear existence in time, and we interact in time. But one of the utilities is how how was it that do we believe that the death of Christ and what He achieved was necessary for salvation for sinful human beings? Yes. Yes. And do we believe that it was something more than demonstration that there was actually achievement that Christ? became the second Adam, and fixed what Adam broke in sin. He became a perfect human specimen, defeating the infection of sin and selfishness and establishing God's perfection of love in the species human by his sojourn on earth. He did. Yes. And that we partake of Christ, that by the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. How could that be applied into Enoch's life and Elijah's life? It hadn't been achieved yet in our linear existence. He hadn't, he hadn't accomplished it yet. It was all promised, but it wasn't there. How could they partake of a perfect human nature that hadn't yet been achieved, except God lives outside time? And once that Christ achieved it any point in time, God who lives outside of time can apply it anywhere in time. Okay? But if it was never achieved by Christ anywhere in time, then God can't apply it anywhere in time. So Christ still came and lived in linear existence and achieved what he achieved, but it is applicable to all human beings anywhere in time, past or present, or future. Second, second thing, I want, I want to get to some science on time, though, because the day, with a day of the Lord is like a thousand years. Uh, a, a day is like a thousand years with the Lord. The, uh, did you know that in 1971, the Haffel and Keating experiment, where they took uh, atomic clocks, and atomic clocks are clocks that measure time out to the infinite multi... M- they parse out seconds into atomic vibrations so they can get very, very accurate atomic time. And they synchronize these atomic clocks so they're all running at the exact same time. And then they took some of the clocks and they put them on an airlines and uh, air, air, uh, jet aircraft and they flew them east around the world in two circles around the world going east. Some went west, two circles around the world going west, and some stayed at their point of origin on the earth. And then after they did that, they compared the clocks. And the theory of relativity is when you go faster, time actually slows down. And when you go slower, time speeds up. This is a theory of relativity. And guess what they found? That, in fact, the clocks going east, going with the rotation of the earth, were now going faster than the earth, the ones that were on the earth. And sure enough, those clocks were a few decimal points slower than the clocks that stayed at their position on earth. And the clocks going west would be going against the rotation of the earth. So they're actually moving slower than the ones on earth at this point. In, in, rel- in relative motion, they're moving slower. And sure enough, when they got back, they were a little faster than the ones who stayed in their position on earth. Not only does t- speed affect your, your, how time moves, gravity expect, uh, affects how time moves. So atomic clocks on the space station where they have less gravity move at a little faster rate than the atomic clocks on, excuse me, yeah, little atomic clocks on earth because gravity slows time down. And this is now just proven science. So as one of the theories that I've had for a long time is that we live on Earth in a time dilation field where time is actually passing at a different rate here than it is in God's heavenly kingdom where Jesus and the angels and the Father currently reside. And that it's very possible that the way time works for the angels, it's been only six or seven days since Adam's fall. It's very possible and it's been 6,000 years or more on earth because time is passing at a different rate. Think about if you move at the speed of light, according to the theory of relativity, when you get to the speed of light, time basically stops moving. 
How fast do you think an angel goes from heaven to earth? You get pictures of this in scripture. It says they like lightning, boom, boom, traveling from heaven to earth. Are they traveling speed of light faster than the speed of light? What's happening to time for them? See, we don't really fully comprehend all this yet, but I think there's real science to believe the scripture. With the, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but maybe six days. Six days since it all happened in, in his regard. Yes? Just a brief point. Yeah, maybe also why days like a thousand years. For God lives in time. Even still seeing Eve take the fruit. You know, God almost sees that happen today. You know, he, you know, well, he lives outside time, so he experiences that for all eternity. He experiences it. He never stops experiencing it. And he knew it from eternity past, which is super heavy. <laughs> then the lesson asks this question I want to close with this in, when, in Wednesday's lesson so what does all this have to do with me now and they say in the, in the paragraph um, they ask this question what does it have to do with me now it, it's as if is this just life insurance for the next insurance, so, uh, next, next life? And so in paragraph two, it says this, our whole Christian faith would become meaningless without the return of Christ and all that he's promised. This is a horrible idea, another horrible idea. So in other words, what they're saying is that there is no meaning, no purpose, no benefit in living God's way except for the future eternal life. God's way doesn't benefit us today except as it ensures that we have everlasting life. If this thinking is correct, then consider this. If there were no second coming and Christ was not going to return, does that then mean it's suddenly that, that living selfishly, lying, betraying, coercion, intimidation, abuse, murder, adultery, and hatred are actually healthier and better ways to live than love, truth, honesty, integrity, freedom, kindness, mercy, loyalty, and forgiveness? If there's no second coming, is the first really a better way to live? It is not a better way to live. Even if there were no second coming, the happiest, most joyful, healthiest way to live is in harmony with God and his design. So what difference does it make now? It makes the difference between health and sickness. It makes the difference between peace and torment ultimately makes a difference between life and death. So it was a big difference. Yes, Wendell, closing comment. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who is love and who created all reality to operate in harmony with the beauty of your character of love, truth presented in love, leaving us free. Lord, as you prophesied through Isaiah, darkness covers the world, a gross darkness covers the people, but Jesus is the light which lightens all men, and we ask that your spirit will take what Christ has achieved and lighten our minds to see the reality of your goodness and your character of love and make us effective in, in removing the distortions of our own mind and being able to share it with others that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.